This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, When Your Child Won't Eat or Eats Too Much, A Parent's Guide for the Prevention and Treatment of Feeding Problems in Young Children. And the author is Dr. Irene Chatur. And Dr. Chatur joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, doctor. Hello. Great to have you with us. Uh, Your book is really going to help answer a lot of questions that people have, especially with young children. It seems frustrating at times why children won't eat. And then, of course, there's children that just eat too much. And so here you've presented this parent's guide to help parents. Uh, And you say this, young children are very good observers. They learn by watching adults and other children. This is how they learn to walk and talk and how they also learn to eat. And young children want to eat and drink what they see their parents doing, I guess. And so that's so important, isn't it, to have that meal time together, sharing that family time, but also providing that kind of role model for uh, eating better and eating right? It's one of the very basic things. And I hope that I will be able to get the message across to many families uh, to not give up on the family dinners. Uh, This is very important, as you mentioned, for showing children how the parents eat. And modeling is is the most powerful way how parents can teach their children. Uh, But it also is like a touchstone for the family to get together at the end of the day and uh, it promotes closeness. And what I see if parents don't find the time to share the dinner with their children, there is a tendency for families to fragment. I always say, as family dinners go, so goes the family. And uh, so I just hope that through this book, I, I can encourage young families to understand the importance of really making an effort to get together at the end of the day and uh, share the meal with their children. You've also done extensive research on feeding disorders. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and then why it was so important for you to write this book? I'm originally from Germany, and I met my late husband uh, in medical school, and he did not want to stay in Germany. He wanted to go back to his native uh, country, Trinidad, uh, and uh, wanted to practice medicine there. So we, we left Germany in 68 and spent six months in Trinidad, but then came to the United States in order to get our specialty training. And we liked it a lot and we stayed here. So I trained first in pediatrics, uh, but in my last year of training in pediatrics, I realized that I much more enjoyed talking to the parents and talking to the children than examining uh, their hearts and lungs and tummies. And I decided to go on and uh, train to become a child psychiatrist, which involved uh, training first in adult psychiatry and then in child psychiatry. And I'm board certified in all three specialties, in pediatrics, in psychiatry and in child psychiatry, but I practice primarily child psychiatry. You say in those early years, it's a real foundation time for a child uh, to establish eating habits and, of course, also can establish very poor eating habits. Yes. Uh, What is so important for uh, parents to understand is that in the first three years, it's the most rapid development of the brain. Uh, There is a process that has been described as pruning. 
which means uh, that uh, those pathways in the brain which are activated, they will make new connections and they grow, whereas other pathways uh, which are not used will obliterate. And this means that children who learn to regulate their eating, their sleep and emotions in a healthy way in those early years, they literally have a head start in life. But on the other hand, if children engage in maladaptive behaviors in those early years, they are very difficult to change as they grow older. Well, in the first few chapters of your book, you explain to parents uh, kind of help how to help children develop these uh, eating habits and so important to set limits. Is that very important? Yes. Um, uh, there is a body of research by Diana Baumrind. Um, she started her work in the 70s, and she described two dimensions in child rearing. One she called uh, parental responsiveness, that we love and attend to the children, and the other one uh, she called uh, limit setting. And the limit setting is just as important as loving the children. Uh, it gives children a sense of security. And this is also so important in the first three years of life, uh, that children understand what is expected and that they learn to live accordingly. Uh, so one of the limits I help parents with is to establish a regular meal pattern. Uh, so that they have, in general, in, in this country, it ends up with three meals, a breakfast, lunch, dinner, and in the afternoon, a mid-afternoon snack meal. I call it a snack meal uh, in contrast to snacking in the car, in the park, in the shopping center, uh, wherever. Uh, it pounds allow children to snack. And this and lip snacking, is really very um, uh, very harmful to children because they learn to eat without being hungry. And children who have a small appetite, who don't feel the hunger very easily, when they are allowed to snack like this, they are not hungry at mealtime and they don't eat. And children who just love to eat, uh, they eat without being hungry and they overeat and become overweight. So setting limits and having set meal times and allow just one snack meal in the afternoon is so important to prevent uh, these excesses of eating, either not eating enough or eating too much, and for children to get really stuck on eating primarily snack foods. Now, your book covers all age groups, no, I, uh, I focus primarily on toddlers, preschoolers, and young school children. Okay. Uh, I do not address the eating difficulties that you see in early adolescence or later adolescence. Um, that is a separate category of eating disorders. And uh, there is a lot of literature that deals with eating disorders we see in the older children and in adolescents. But there is really not much out there for the feeding problems we see in the first five, six years of life. Talk to us about infantile anorexia. Yeah, this is one of the feeding disorders I have studied in, in particular <clears throat> in the last, over the last 20 years. And, and this is a feeding disorder where children don't seem to experience hunger in the way most children do. These are children who just go for hours without signaling uh, that they are hungry. They're very happy and curious children. They love to play. They love to talk. And uh, they are usually very bright. Uh, but they have very little interest in eating. So anorexia means lack of appetite. And I called it infantile anorexia because this feeding problem shows up in the first few years of life. Um, most commonly, these children 
um, have difficulty eating, they don't eat enough, they don't gain weight enough, they become underweight, and this can start as early as six to nine months of age, but more commonly in the, in the second and third year of life, that these children really uh, become quite underweight because they just don't want to eat. Uh, I, my favorite way to describe them is they love everything in the world except food. And you have case studies in most of your chapters as well. Yes. And I, um, I have heard from parents uh, when I have written papers and I put uh, case studies in papers which I wrote uh, that it was particularly helpful for them to read the case studies because then they could directly relate uh, to uh, their own child uh, when they read how I describe how children with these different feeding problems develop. What about selective eaters? That's one of your chapters of just picky eaters, or is there more to it than just that? There is more to it. Um, and I, I don't like the term picky eater uh, because it means something different to every person. Uh, some people uh, think that these are just very finicky, um, willful children who just um, don't want to go by the general rules of eating everything there is on the table. Uh, and, um, but it is a much more difficult uh, situation. And there is one group of selective children who realize that their parents really want them to eat. And they like to make demands. Uh, the, the mother brings one food. They say, no, I don't want it. I want another food. And the mother brings another food. And they realize that they can really gain control over their mothers in particular by refusing to eat certain foods. So they do it for, people call it manipulation. Uh, and this is very different from children who have, poor, have really bad sensory experiences when they first are exposed to certain foods. And uh, these children are born with these sensory difficulties. And what happens is when they're introduced to new foods, which is most commonly uh, when they're around uh, nine, ten months or one or two years when they're introduced to a variety of table foods, uh, that the children, uh, when they first put the food in their mouth, uh, they may grimace if it's a mild aversion, uh, but they spit it out or they might even gag and vomit. And then they become scared to eat that food anymore because they had such a bad reaction to it. And sometimes parents don't realize when a child spits out the food or gags how serious it is for the child. And they keep on trying to get the child to eat it. And the more they try, the more fearful the children get. And they are not only fearful to eat that particular food, but then they begin to generalize. And uh, so if it was a green vegetable like spinach, they might refuse all green foods. Or if it was a yellow food, like one little boy told me, he couldn't eat any yellow food because his mommy gave him yellow squash and it made him gag, and then he threw up, and he was scared every time he saw yellow food that he would uh, uh, he would throw up. So these children develop really serious fears, and the more the parents try to get them to eat these foods, the more fearful they get, and then develops this really bad interactional uh, cycle where the parents get more and more frustrated because the children eat a, eat a very limited diet and the children become so worried about mealtime because they are afraid to eat these foods which were so aversive to them in the first place. So what I hope through the book I can help parents understand this feeding difficulty and not make children eat foods that, uh, that they are so scared of. All it does, it really makes the problem worse.
Mm. And my whole message in the book is that I want to help, to help parents to help their children so they can be uh, the best parents for their children. Right. We only have a couple of minutes left, Doctor. Of course, we have a big, uh, uh, I guess that was a poor uh, pun, to talk about obesity in this uh, uh, country today and in the world. But how do we help children who eat too much? As we know, there is a very high genetic predisposition for obesity. Uh, but genes does not mean destiny. And other colleagues and I have been able to demonstrate uh, that even with a high genetic predisposition, young children can be helped to eat normally. And uh, there are a few things that uh, that uh, we observe in children who overeat. Uh, these children often eat at a faster rate than other children. They also are more um, prone to respond to palatable foods. So if you have foods out there, uh, these children just want to eat them without being hungry. And they have less awareness when they are full. So what I do with these children uh, is that the principle that is good for all children, that means to have a set meal schedule, is most important for these children. Three meals and a mid-afternoon snack meal. And there should be absolutely no snacking, no drinking of milk, no drinking of juice or soda in between. The only thing these children or any children should drink in between is water. Now, the additional thing that is very helpful for children who are prone to overeat is to give them small portions and allow them to have second and third and if they want fourth helping until the child really can feel that he or she is full. When parents do this uh, and children are not anymore restricted during mealtime, what parents often do uh, when these children want more and more of their foods uh, is that they realize and they learn when they're satiated, they learn when they're full. And it is often after just two, maybe three helpings, small helpings. Mm -hmm. The other thing that helps with these children is if the parents give them vegetables along with the other foods and uh, make the vegetable portion relatively bigger than their favorite foods. And they have to eat what's on their plate before they can have another helping. That does also slow them down in, in their eating and it helps them to pay attention to when their tummy is full. It is remarkable, the parents who can do this with their children. I have had very obese little children who did just beautifully and developed into healthy eaters uh, and who had a normal size. We've been listening to Dr. Irene Chatur. She is the author of her book, When Your Child Won't Eat or Eats Too Much, A Parent's Guide for the Prevention and Treatment of Feeding Problems in Young Children. Doctor, tell us how to get your book. You can uh, buy it on Amazon.com and you can get it uh, through iUniverse.com. Thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere 
to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Lost Source, a novel. And the author is John Martin. And John joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, John. Hi, Steve. How are you? Great to have you with us. Uh, This is a story that fits into today's news because we hear a lot about outsourcing the big uh, controversy of jobs leaving this country, going off to China and elsewhere in the world. And you say this about your book, Lost Source is the story of a strike against outsourcing American jobs that leads to a confrontation between the United States and China in the Taiwan Strait. Well, of course, China is also in the news all the time and battling the United States for world power, economic power, and who knows where they're headed with their military. It seems they're growing there, too. But uh, you also say this is really a realistic adventure story. It's about real people going about their lives and searching for self-knowledge. And, of course, they get caught up in the swirl of world events. So uh, your characters, even though this is fiction, you see this as they're pretty real. I think so, yeah. Sometimes you see books where the, the heroes can, you know, jump from one mountain to another, but these are these are regular people in a working environment, in this case a union environment, uh, just like you said, going about their lives and one thing leads to another as it tends to do in life and they suddenly find themselves on the world stage on a big serious in a big serious game where uh the stakes couldn't be higher. Tell us about yourself, John, uh, your background, and why you wrote your book. Well, I come from a working-class background myself. I grew up first in the Bronx and down in the south shore of Long Island. Uh, lived among aircraft mechanics, tool and die makers, cops, firefighters. Went to college, first wanted to go to college in the family, and after college I must have uh, wanted to go back in some ways, so I uh, actually took a detour back into working-class work including seven years as a machinist. Then started writing about manufacturing and uh, then wanted to write a, always wanted to be a creative writer and novel and just kind of pieced together that history, some of it subconsciously, some consciously, and looked at world events and that, that's how this story came came about. It's an important thing going on in the world, outsourcing and the, the struggle with China and you know, for world supremacy, I think, and uh, that's that's kind of the gist of it. Uh, John, tell us the meaning of the book's title, uh, Lost Source. Well, it means a few different things. At, at the plot level, it's kind of a play on the word outsourcing. And it refers to the fact that through outsourcing, I believe we're losing some of our source. We're sending it out and away. We're outsourcing solid, productive work, which is a source of people's character. And because of that, I think we're in danger of losing... Many of our people, our ultimate source of strength as a, as a country, uh, without work, they're becoming demoralized, despairing, uh, feeling defeated. Work is a source of character. It's also a source of self-respect. Uh, it's the foundation for stable families, decent neighborhoods, and civic pride. 
when you peel back the title one more layer in the characters, it speaks to how we as individuals often stray from our, our own source during our lives and, and have to refine it. Uh, several of the characters go through a journey where they become aware that they have wandered from their source, from their essence, and, and moved to refine it. I guess the third level is, is a personal one. It actually refers to me. Um, it refers to me regaining some of my source, some of my lost source, my desire to write, and my sense of fulfillment through writing. Tell us about your lead male character, John Shea. Well, he's probably too close for comfort. Uh, a little bit like me, I tried to write about what I knew, but but he's different. He's I'm a writer, and he's a, he's in the trade union movement. The book picks him up when he's at kind of a stale point in his life, at the job and in his marriage, and he very quickly uh, goes from a secondary role in the strike and in the union to, to the lead role when the the chief negotiator and the union president gets uh, gets gets murdered. So. And also there's the female lead, Hannah Stein. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I had a little fun with this. She's a, kind of a New York intellectual, progressive, slam poet, uh, went to labor relations school, got plucked out of a pool of candidates by Shea and hired. She's got a lot going on in her life, kind of unsettled relationships, starts wrestling with the possibility of young onset Parkinson's. She's got some symptoms and there's a hereditary link through her dad. So she's got a lot going on and then she's suddenly thrust into a position of uh, great responsibility as Shay's number two and eventually when he appears to be uh, missing, she pretty much takes over the show, tries to find him and tries to lead the strike. Now we've got some key themes here, messages in your book. Uh, we're you obviously got some strong feelings about uh, the importance of a manu- manufacturing base for a country and factory work for its citizens. Well, yeah, I think so. I, you know, whether it's as the foundation of national defense or just economic opportunity, you know, we're not all tech whiz kids and doctors and scientists. There are a lot of people who are skilled, semi-skilled, unskilled, and historically there's always been opportunity. If you had energy and good work habits, you could go into a plant and get a job. And that time is gone, at least for now. Uh, I just feel manufacturing is key, not only to economic development, but even to personal self-discipline. When I went into the factories, I was a little bit all over the place, and I learned discipline there. You, You make exact things, and the part is right or it's not, and... You know, both for economic opportunity as well as for personal opportunity and and just uh, self-discipline. I, I think it's very important work to have in a country, even if, even if it's just a starting point. Some people may spend their career in it. It's very stimulating. There are a lot of opportunities in it. And some people just may use it as a jump-off point to get a start in life and maybe go into a different direction through education or a different choice. So... Those plants are not there anymore. I don't know what the number is. Maybe it's 50,000 have gone in the last 20 years. And uh, I think it's made a big deal to this country why we never seem to get back to anything close to what we used to have in terms of employment. So is your book, the one of the themes, is more of a pro-union theme? I think it is pro-union. I grew up in a union household. I, I point out in the book some of the pluses and minuses of unions. But... When push comes to shove, I think it's unions that are what kind of lay the floor below which people shouldn't be allowed to fall if they're hardworking people. They insist on certain standards of work and standards of safety, standards of benefit. And really, in this book, it's not about unions per se. Unions are the organized expression of workers, of blue-collar people. You know, they're just the organized voice of everyone who's sitting around a table at night worried about bills. Can they pay for their child's sports team or music lessons? Or can they pay the mortgage? You know, to me, unions are the the force that kind of unites a lot of those people. And it's a logical choice for my book that you know, they would be here focused on because they're the ones that stand out. They go into the streets that have the power to to fight against some large trends in society. 
So you have this development of more jobs. You've got economic growth in other nations. Uh, some of the, you know, the labor force is, as you point out, is even doubled in China and India and other countries, especially this manufacturing base. But of course, at the expense of of nations like the United States. So, is this a what kind of a theme is this in your book? Well. You know, in many ways, it's a great development for the world. You know, hundreds of millions of people have been lifted out of poverty, have found work, have found their own pathway to the middle class. It's it's a story with two dimensions. That that's one dimension. The other dimension is that, in fact, I think we're we're battling to take jobs from each other. Uh, probably there are not a finite amount of jobs in the world. If humankind is very innovative and entrepreneurial and is always coming up with something new. But we're at a point now, I think, where there's a battle for resources, for jobs, for economic development. Uh, it, it happens in, in our country between states, and it's now it's happening between countries. It's, it's, it's like a lot of things in life. They're bitter and they're sweet. The sweetness is the globalization bringing us closer together and bringing opportunity to the developed, developing and emerging world. But the bitterness is that, to some extent, that has been at the expense of people in our country who have not perhaps been quick enough to get the education to change gears and take advantage of the new opportunities in the more you know, service-based or knowledge-based industries, as opposed to basic manufacturing. Give us a little glimpse into your storyline that eventually brings uh, the United States and China right to the brink of war. Well, Shea's, John Shea, the lead character, is in charge of the strike, and he finds out that there's some counterfeiting taking place at the company he's striking, their plant in China. He goes over to take a look, and he gets kidnapped over there by the people who are involved in the counterfeiting, and one thing leads to another. The union tries to get him back. The union has some relationship with the government, of course. The government has stepped in in the U.S. and tried to help settle the strike. One thing just leads to another. Uh, they're trying to get him back, and the Chinese, some of the Chinese people in the underground trade union movement who have met him start a series of strikes uh, in the U.S. More strikes take place to, to free him. And eventually it becomes a government-to-government -government situation. There's kind of a, not really an uprising, but demonstrations in Taiwan. And China is trying to put a lid on it. And the U.S. is trying to, you know, stand up for what it believes in for its citizens. And standing behind, you know, Taiwan as well. Next thing you know, there's a carrier battle group steaming to the Taiwan Strait. And the two countries are, as you said, uh, right on the precipice as... They may very well be sometime down the road, God forbid, but uh, some many things point in that direction. We've been listening to author John Martin, his book, Lost Source, a novel. John, tell us how to get your book. Well, The Usual Suspects, uh, you can get it from online re retailers like Amazon, Barnes & Noble, the publisher itself, iUniverse, you, know, you can order it through their site. You can go into any bookstore and... Just mention it, they will not, they'll not have it stocked on the shelves just yet. Hopefully that will happen, but they will all, always order it for you. It's available to them through all the major distributors of the booksellers across the country. Thanks, John, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Steve, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. 
This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, War Children, a memoir. And the author is Michael Trudowski, and Michael joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Michael. Hello. Uh, I'm glad to be on your show. Glad to have you here. You're going to take us through an incredible historic time inside Nazi Germany. Uh, it's about your experiences as a boy growing up during that period, uh, before and during World War II. And, of course, there's a few books that uh, give eyewitness reports of the Nazi time in World War II from inside Germany by children. That's really rare. So we appreciate you uh, taking this unique approach, Michael. Uh, it certainly, uh, I imagine writing it was an incredibly emotional experience. Yes, it was. Uh, uh, of course, uh, it was so uh, affecting me so much that uh, for a long time I didn't even speak about this, these events during the war. And uh, I find this is true for other war children that they try to uh, not think about it and go go on with their lives. And uh, I was this, the same way and really did not open up about these exper- ex- uh, experiences till I was about 40 years old. And uh, uh, we have uh, five children and uh, I noticed that my children, as they went through school, had a very confused idea what uh, Germany was like during the Nazi time, and uh, either had wrong information or no information at all. And I, uh, they looked at me and said, what was your parents' role in this? Were they Nazis, or uh, what was your role? And, and uh, there was no information at all from the schools forthcoming. Uh, there was uh, much information about uh, uh, the concentration camps. They read uh, 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 about this, and they, uh, there was information about the Blitz uh, and Coventry and London and uh, about the war in the war, in the air, uh, uh, the bomber, uh, the bombers, how they had danger from flak and uh, and fought the war in the air, but there was nothing about what happened on the ground and what happened right after the war in Germany, and uh, so I was motivated to write this book, number one to uh, uh, teach my children what really went on in our family over there. And uh, uh, I also wanted to fill in uh, uh, missing information in in the history of the United States in this war, what happened on the ground. And uh, I I felt I was in a perfect position to write this because I was saw all this as a child 
I had no agenda. I had uh, no uh, understanding why this war was going on, other than uh, the adults uh, cannot uh, messing up the world, world and uh, and uh, the children are plain suffering. And so uh, it is a just an account of uh, what I saw and uh, I felt and I heard uh, just put down paper and that is probably the, the truest window you can have on a missing part of information about the war. And I think after 75 years or 70 years later, uh, the public will be able to see that as uh, uh, without getting emotionally involved in, in, in this information. Oh, great now, contribution. Uh, great contribution, yeah. Michael. I uh, just wanted to ask a couple questions uh, about... Before the war, of course, Hitler had taken over, and you were going to school, what? and you were being brainwashed. How did your parents handle that? Well, uh, you know, my, my parents were against Hitler and against the Nazis. Uh, my father was a, a play director at the theater, and my mother was a photographer. And uh, so they were both artists, and... Uh, my my father's uh, teacher and idol and and mentor was a fa one of the two f most famous play directors in Berlin and Germany, by the name of Leopold Jesner, and Jesner was Jewish, and Jesner uh, had to. My father always said, "I everything I know about the stage, uh, I learned from Jesner," and. Uh, in '33, yes, I went to Hollywood and made movies there till he died. And my father wanted to immigrate, and with him, but he couldn't find a sponsor. You needed a sponsor in the United States to get you out of the country. And uh, so we were stuck in in Germany, but uh, appalled about, or my parents were appalled about what was happening in Germany, and. Uh, uh, at first, uh, you know, from I was born in '35 till '39. Uh, the first four years of three and a half years of my life were just wonderful because my parents were so reinforcing for me. They did everything wrong, everything right that uh, uh, parents should do. Uh, loving parents. Uh, uh, Provided me with, with all the protection and and nourishment and and uh, uh, interest in, in uh, art, which came very early in my life. And uh, so uh, the book goes into the uh, characterizing my parents and my relationship to them, and and really the the very blissful first years where there was uh, before the war, just to show how the war will bit by bit take all this away. Right, you know? turn your life upside and down. The, huh? the, yeah. The turn your life upside down. Absolutely. But little by little. Uh -huh. And uh, the book goes into that, how that happens, how this tragedy happens. But as you mentioned, uh, as I got into uh, school, uh, in second grade, third and fourth grade, they started brainwashing us. And uh, my parents uh, always countermanded that when I came home and, and told them what I learned in, in school. I said, you know, that this nonsense is a lie. And I became very aware of uh, how language can be... Uh, 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 changed and, and turned into lies, and uh, my parents uh, canceled all newspapers and said, this is all lies, you know, and, 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 and the same with the radio. And uh, whatever I brought back from from school, uh, they said that uh, that is nonsense, but don't ever tell anybody 
outside what we are discussing at home, privately, hmm. because that was uh, very dangerous. I mean, right. there were instances where they, particularly late, uh, older children, that were required to go to Hitlerjugend at age 10, 10 they were required to uh, join. And then uh, the brainwashing really went on in earnest. And there were instances where children were so corrupted in their thinking that uh, they uh, they told what what was said at home if if their parents were against the government, and uh, uh, they would be arrested, hmm. and the children would be uh, given in some kind of a uh, government on school, and uh, that was the end of that. And so it was extremely dangerous to ever mention it, and I was aware of that. And uh, consequently, I, I talked very little uh, and was always afraid that I would say the wrong thing. Right. Let's talk about the literally the sheer terror of children during bombing raids. Now, you you know, you go into detail... Oh, yeah about one such one where you and your uh, mother and uh, right. you know you had to go into the cellar because there was literally an ultimatum from the Americans exactly exactly that that uh, it went uh, towards that uh, final situation over uh, uh, six years I mean I I spent hundreds of nights in bomb shelters. And you can imagine a, a, a child with a uh, is so susceptible to whatever happens in the surrounding that will be a strong effect on the child. So uh, yes, uh, eventually uh, we had to f uh, we lived uh, in uh, Strasbourg, which is Strasbourg now, which at b between forty. Uh, 1940, 1944 was German, and uh, my father was uh, chief play director at that theater. So then, uh, at the end of the war, uh, the Allies came towards uh, Strasbourg, and we had to flee. And my father was drafted the last nine months of the war. He was uh, being at the theater. He was. Uh, Deferred because uh, Goebbels and the propaganda ministerium left the theaters open to uh, boost the morale of the people. That was the reason for it. So anyway, they scored, they closed, and uh, my mother and my sister, who is five years younger, had to flee and went to Erfurt, which is in the middle of Germany, uh, right smack in the middle of. Thuringia, and uh, a large city, and there the bombing was really, uh, you know, every three nights we had a, a bombing raid, and uh, in between we had alerts, and we never knew that our city was targeted or, or the neighboring city, so it was sort of a, a Russian roulette kind of a situation, but... Uh, Finally, the, the Allies, uh, Patton, uh, brought uh, his uh, tanks around the city, and the city was besieged. And uh, uh, at that point, we were bombed so, so hard that our neighbor's house was destroyed. The next bomb get, went in, across the street in front of my, my grandmother's house. So it, it was very, very, very dangerous at that time. And then uh, the American troops dropped leaflets in the, in the, in the city uh, and saying, you are besieged, and uh, the mayor has to come out with a white flag by midnight, or we'll destroy the city completely by bombing raids. And uh, at that time, we had moved down in the, in the basement, and uh, 
I overheard the adults talking about that. My mother always tried to not mention the the terror as uh, to, towards us children as if he could, if she could. And uh, so uh, I knew we we had bunk beds down there in the in the basement, and uh, I knew that this was the end. I mean, uh, I would not get out of this alive. And uh, so I was waiting for midnight to for it to happen. And uh, then uh, it did. It did. What 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 happened is that. Uh, the SS had uh, put the mayor under house arrest, so he could not get out of the city and, and uh, surrender uh, because they followed Hitler's dictate that every uh, city should be defended to the last person, you know. And uh, but the the second. Uh, uh, the assistant mayor got away and uh, somehow got out of uh, the li- over the line to the Americans and said there are only women and children in there and uh, some old men drafted for the total war and and uh, some boys uh, from high school and you can just roll your tanks in the city there will be no resistance because all the fighting uh, men were had already uh, were outside the, the city that had tried to fight uh, on the front line. So uh, this was uh, General Walker, uh, one of uh, Patton's generals, and he accepted it. And uh, so then they just moved in with artillery. And uh, but the effect. That this waiting for getting killed head on me was sure. pretty profound. It's hard to really it's understand. Uh, your book, yeah. your book, Michael, is riveting. It's obviously very emotional, and it takes us right inside Germany, covering the time from 1935 to 1948. And it's titled "War Children: A Memoir." Michael Trudowski. Michael, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can get it on uh, uh, Barnes and Nobles, and Amazon, uh, other the most uh, used uh, sources. But you can get it in, in practically every bookstore. They don't have it there, but they ha- can order it for you. Exactly. So uh, very good. Well, Michael, thank you so much. I know we don't have a whole lot of time to get into a lot of details, but you certainly shared some very important points about your book, War Children. Thank you for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.